afternoon we are studying what the church confesses from Lord's Day 2 of the Heidelberg Catechism about our sin as well and the law of God. Uh, We're going to actually begin our reading at question and answer 2 of Lord's Day 1. Lord's Day 1, question and answer 1, of course, describes our only comfort in life and in death, and it gives that wonderful confession of faith that we hold to. But then we have question and answer two. There we read, what do you need to know in order to live and die in the joy of this comfort? First, how great my sins and misery are. Second, how I am delivered from all my sins and misery. And third, how I am to be thankful to God for such deliverance. From where do you know your sins and misery? From the law of God. What does God's law require of us? Christ teaches us this in a summary in Matthew 22. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Can you keep all this perfectly? No, I am inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. As far as the reading of God's, our, of our confession of faith. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, they say that you learn something new every day, and when I was preparing this sermon, I came across a random fact that stuck out to me. If I were to ask you what the tallest mountain in the world is, I'm sure most of us would immediately say uh, Mount Everest. And that wouldn't be wrong. By standard measurements, it is the tallest mountain in the world, reaching over 29 thousand feet above sea level. However, according to some, Mount Everest is technically not the tallest mountain on earth. Taking all things into consideration, many give first place to a mountain called Mauna Kea in Hawaii. Why do they do that? Mauna Kea doesn't look like anywhere near the tallest mountain on earth when you look at it. But that's because the majority of this mountain is underwater. If you measure this mountain from its base at the ocean floor, it surpasses even Mount Everest. That mountain doesn't look like much, but when you understand how far it reaches down, you can't help but be impressed with its height. And when I was preparing this sermon, I couldn't help but think that this provides a good analogy for the theme of this afternoon's sermon. No, as I preach you God's word here, I can simply tell you that God loves you, and sure, we would appreciate hearing that, and we need to hear that. However, there are times when we might not uh, be as impressed with that fact as we ought to be, that God loves us in Jesus Christ. Why is that? Well, we might not understand how great his love is how big it is, how high it reaches. But that's also one reason why we study the Bible's teaching about sin. We really only understand how far down God's love reaches to rescue us sinful people when we see 
how far down our, the depths are of our sin. And when we do come to understand the depths of our sin, it's only then that we really come to rejoice in the heights of God's love for us. So that brings us to the sermon theme, which is this. We need to know the depths of our sin to understand the heights of God's love. And we're going to look at uh, three things, main things connected to that theme. Uh, first, why we need to know our sin. Second, how we know our sin. And third, what our sin shows us about God's love. So the Heidelberg Catechism begins with a beautiful confession of faith that we are familiar with. Uh, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And that comfort is that I do belong to Jesus Christ, my faithful Savior, in body and in soul at all times. He has fully paid for your sins. He set you free from the power of the devil. We can even confess that uh, without my Father's uh, will, not even a hair will fall from my head. All things work together for my salvation. Beautiful things. And yet, after that beautiful confession, Lorsay 2 begins with what seems to be a rather depressing section of the catechism. You'll notice a heading above Lorsay 2. It says in bold letters, our sin and misery. Not a very uh, wonderful thing to study, it seems, and really it isn't. And so we might ask, well, why do we study this? Why do we take the time to study Scripture's teaching about sin and God's judgment? Is it just to keep us down in the dumps? And to that we can answer, well, studying our sin and God's judgment upon sin would indeed do that if that's all we knew. Or if all we knew was our sin and God's judgment. Certainly, we would all be in despair. If uh, we did not move on from that point to the good news of Christ, I'm sure we would all be left without hope. But remember, we are studying our sin and misery in light of the confession we already made in Lord's Day 1, that we belong to Jesus Christ. Look at what we read in question answer 2. What do you need to know in order to live and die in the joy of that comfort? comfort of belonging to Christ. The first thing we need to know is our sin and our misery. We need to know it. We need to know our sin and misery so that we might live in joy. It might sound like a contradiction, knowing our sin so that we can live in joy, but it's not. We need to hear the bad news before we will truly rejoice in the good news of Christ. And you see this same pattern in Scripture also. Take, for example, the book of Romans. In Romans 1, verses 16 and 17, Paul writes those well-known words about the gospel. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is a power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So Paul is saying, I'm going to tell you this glorious good news of Jesus Christ. It sounds like a really positive message, doesn't it? 
And indeed it is if you read through the whole book of Romans. Paul is eager to tell us the good news, a message of salvation to everyone who believes. Well, then we might be thinking, well, that sounds great, Paul. Tell us this good news. We want to hear it. Yet the very next words that appear in Romans are are these. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Seems like such a contrast. He seems eager to tell the good news of Christ, but then immediately he starts talking about the wrath of God, and that goes on for a few chapters. He sticks with that theme, the wrath of God and human sin. And that doesn't sound like good news. However, in the Holy Spirit, through Paul, we'll get to the good news of Christ. In fact, the gospel is nowhere more beautifully described, perhaps, than in the book of Romans. But before he comes to that good news of Christ, he needs to paint the backdrop of human sin and God's judgment on it. And so he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Salvation for everyone who believes. Right away he says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. You see, if we don't understand our own sin and misery, we would never find our only comfort in Christ. We wouldn't do it. If we didn't understand our sin, we would think what we could do it all on our own, work ourselves into God's good books all on our, on our own. We would most likely believe that humans are fundamentally good and God will accept us as long as we try our best. You know, it reminds me of the lyrics to an old country song by Alan Jackson. The song is called Where I Come From. Maybe you've heard it before. He says... Uh, He sings in that song, where I come from, it's cornbread and chicken. Where I come from, a lot of front porch sitting. Where I come from, trying to make a living and working hard to get to heaven. Where I come from. Maybe you've heard that song before. It gets stuck in your head quite easily. But working hard to get to heaven. That is the mindset of so many people on this earth. And that's the idea behind so many religions. It's not the Christian faith, but this is the automatic stance of the fallen man. In fact, when I originally made this sermon, we had quite a, quite a big snowfall, and my neighbor graciously came over with his snowblower to, to blow off my driveway. And he said to me that he figured it would get him one step closer to heaven. I had to politely tell him that that's not how it worked. He needed to believe and Jesus Christ. He thought that sounded good. But again, that mindset, I'll get one step closer to heaven the more good works I do. And that is where we would be if we did not understand our sin. Our only comfort in life and in death would be something like, I've lived a pretty good life, and God will accept me because what a good little boy I have been. But when we know our sin... We know we can't find salvation in here. We have to find our salvation outside of us. 
And there's salvation in only one place and only in one person. Our Lord Jesus Christ alone. And so that's the goal of studying our sin. Not to leave us in despair or down in the dumps, but that we might turn our eyes to Jesus Christ, the only Savior of the world. That brings us to our second point. So having seen the need to know our sin and misery, the next logical question is found in Lord's Day 2, from where do you know your sin and misery? And the answer is from the law of God. That's one of the purposes of God's law, to point out sin. And so the, the law of God is like, um, like a measuring stick. Think of a, a big ruler, perhaps a meter stick, and the measuring stick sets the standard of right and wrong. And anything that falls short of that measuring stick is sin. And one of the purposes of the measuring stick of God's law is to measure ourselves against it. We can analyze our uh, actions, our words, our thoughts, our desires, and we compare it next to the standard of God's law. And if we fall short, if we don't measure up, then we know we have sinned. And guess what? That includes all of us. We haven't measured up. You see, so many people don't understand they are sinful, though. They think they are pretty good people. Well, the problem is they are comparing themselves, measuring themselves to the wrong standard. They're not measuring themselves next to God's law, which requires that we love him with all of our heart, soul, and mind, and strength. But they're measuring themselves to other people. Well, I'm not Hitler. I'm not, not that bad. Or else they don't understand how awful sin really is. And we ourselves often don't grasp how uh, sinful our evil nature is, our hearts. But listen to Jeremiah 17. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick who can understand it. Some of the worst advice you can give to someone is to tell them, just follow your heart. Right? Just follow your heart. You'll get led in the right spot. Well, no, you won't. Ask someone if they've ever murdered, murdered someone. Most people will say, well, not even close. Never pull the trigger on anyone. That might be well and good, but what about this? Have you ever hated someone? Have you ever bullied somebody? Have you ever been consumed by envy or anger towards another person? Have you ever taken revenge or desired revenge? Have you ever wished someone would get sick or die? The answer is yes, and you've fallen short of God's perfect measuring stick. We have sinned. As the Lord Jesus told us, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Strong words from our Lord Jesus. And he's doing that to reveal to us the sin that is in our hearts. We all have it. See, the Word of God comes to us to shake us out of our self-delusion that we are just good in ourselves. Look at how this happens in Isaiah 5, which we read. 
The Holy Spirit, in this chapter, through the prophet Isaiah, pronounces a series of woes on the people of Israel. You know, woe are these people, woe are those people. The term woe is used to to declare God's coming judgment on sinful people. We hear this again and again in Isaiah 5, there's verse 18. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes. Verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Verse 21, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Verse 22, woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine. And valiant men in mixing strong drink who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. right? And God is pronouncing these on sinful people. And the conclusion of these woes comes in the next few verses where it says, Therefore, as the tongues of fire devours the stubble and as dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their root will be as rottenness and their blossom go up like dust, for they have rejected the law of the Lord Hosts and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them. And their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. What is God doing in Isaiah 5, revealing to his people their sin and his judgment on sin? But even if we think that we have escaped those woes, In Isaiah 5, pronouncements of judgment. Look at then what happens in Isaiah 6. Isaiah himself describes a vision of the Lord and nearly gives him a a nervous breakdown. He says, In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, a, a type of angel. They each had six wings. With their wings, they covered their feet and their faces, and with two, they flew. And one seraphim called to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the triple use of the word holy is for emphasis. God has complete holiness, not one speck of the impurity of sin. It says that the sound of their voices, the foundations of the threshold shook and the house was filled with smoke. What happened to Isaiah, who was a priest and a prophet of the Lord, a holy man? It was just all too much. So as he sees this vision of the Lord, as he comes into the presence of God, he cries out, woe is me. Right? For I am lost, I am a man of unclean lips, and I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He's absolutely overcome by the majesty, the holiness, and the absolute purity of God. And when he comes into God's presence, he knows, he just, he knows that he is a sinful man doesn't have the same purity as the Lord. And that is all of us. It strikes him in his very heart, and he can't help but say, I'm lost, I'm done for. I'm a sinner. I have unclean lips, and even the fact that I live among people with unclean lips is going to do me in. 
Right? In chapter 5, he proclaimed woe on the Israelites, but now he's proclaiming woe on himself. And he feels that judgment must be imminent. Make no mistake, we would all do the same if we were in Isaiah's shoes. That would be all of us, overcome by the holiness of God. Isaiah had unclean lips, and so do we. How many words have we not spoken that are not 100% pure? Christ says in Matthew 12, On the day of judgment, we will have to give account for every careless word that we've ever spoken. And when, when you hear something like that, and you think of the words you've spoken in your life, you know, you're not going to make it on your own. You're not going to be able to pass a test to get into heaven by your good works. If you're working hard to get to heaven, as the old country song goes, you're not going to make it. You're not going to make it. No one is. You see, we know our sin and misery not only from the law of God, but we know it from God himself. What do I mean by that? Well, God's law is a reflection of God's own character, his righteousness, his holiness, his purity. So when we study God himself in Scripture... And measure ourselves next to him. We know that we have all fallen short of his glory. And this passage in Isaiah 6 is a perfect example. Remember Isaiah's words again. Woe is me, for I am lost, a man of unclean lips. It's not just that way for Isaiah. It would be the same for us too. That brings us to our last point. Now at this point... We, we need to remember, remind ourselves why we study these things. Why do we study our sin and God's judgment on sin? Is it just to make us quake with fear as Isaiah did and leave it there? No, it's not. Magnifying the holiness of God in our sin is meant to also magnify the grace and love of God for lost sinners. And to see that, look at what happens further on in Isaiah 6. After Isaiah cries out the majesty and purity of God and holiness of God and proclaims woe in himself, one of the seraphim flew to him. In his hand, he had some tongs. With those tongs, he had grasped a burning coal from the altar and the temple. With that burning coal and those tongs, he then flew towards Isaiah. What do you think Isaiah was thinking when this majestic angel comes flying to him with this burning coal? Well, if he was nervous before, which he was, he's probably even more nervous now. Now, bringing a burning coal to a sinner doesn't sound like a happy ending. It sounds more like judgment. And you know what? There's many people who have that feeling, too. I've talked with people before who ask them to come to church, and they say, no, I better not come to church. I'm gonna, I've heard this multiple times, literally. I'm going to set on fire as soon as I step in there. Because they know their sin, and they think, it's no use for me. Well, maybe Isaiah had the same feeling that he was about to be set on fire. 
But just when he probably thinks he's going to get judgment, Isaiah receives grace. Seraphim took the burning coal, touched Isaiah's mouth, and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. You know what? What beautiful words to hear, especially right after Isaiah's moment of deep distress because of his sin. He hears these words, your guilt is taken away, your sin atoned for, just like that. Notice what the seraph does not say. He doesn't say to Isaiah, oh, stop being so hard on yourself, Isaiah. Your sin is no big deal. You're actually a pretty good chap, so stop worrying. No. Isaiah needs to know his sin. But he needs to know God's grace, too. So he proclaims the good news. Isaiah's sin has been paid for. Removed, taken away forever. And how relieved and joyful he must have been. Now he can stand in the presence of God without fear. And beloved, that's the same grace God has shown to us in Jesus Christ. Listen to the good news found in Romans 3. 23 and 24, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's us. And are justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The same grace Isaiah received, we received for Jesus Christ. Or listen to Romans 5, verses 6 and 8. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for you on the cross so that your guilt would be removed forever, your sin atoned for, taken away. He died to make it possible for you who are sinful in yourself to enter the presence of God finally without fear. We need to see first how great our sin is to understand how amazing this grace of God is. God cannot look upon sin. It would have been perfectly just to punish Isaiah right then and there. And it would be perfectly just to punish us too. He gave us his very sin. Our guilt is atoned for by the death of God's son. There's no mountain of love taller than that. And this grace and love of God, it also changes your life. It's going to change how you live. See this? Look at what happened to Isaiah. First, he came into the presence of holy God. He thought he was going to die. Uh, God then declared that his sin was paid for. And what do we read next? Well, we see Isaiah eager to serve this God who has graciously forgiven him. In verse 8, Isaiah heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us in the service of the Lord? Then Isaiah said, Here I am. Send me. 
know, when the Lord asks a question, you can almost see Isaiah jumping up and down and saying, oh, pick me, pick me, send me, Lord. So when you study this passage here in Isaiah 6, you can see a pattern. First, we have Isaiah's sin. Then we have Isaiah's salvation. And then we have Isaiah's service to God. Or we could put it like this. First, we see Isaiah's guilt. Then we see God's grace. And then we see Isaiah's gratitude. And think also what we have in the catechism. Listen again to question and answer two. What must I know in order to live and die in the joy of this comfort? First, how great my sins and misery are. Second, how I am delivered from my sins and misery. And third, how I am to be thankful to God for such deliverance. How I am to serve him now in light of his grace. Beloved, that is us. We and ourselves can't stand before the Lord. But by his grace in Jesus Christ, we can come into his presence. See his grace to you. Rejoice in that. And also then, like Isaiah, be eager to see your Lord in heaven. Amen. Let's respond to the preaching of God's word by singing Psalm 25, stanzas 2, 3, and 4.